0: Welcome to Cold Steel, the Canadian Journal of Surgery podcast with your hosts Amir Farouk and Chad Ball. The goal of the CJS podcast is threefold. The first is to highlight the best research currently being completed by Canadian surgeons. The second is to offer educational topics for both surgeons and trainees alike. And most importantly, the third goal is to inspire discussion, thoughts, creativity, and career development in all Canadian surgeons. We hope you enjoy it.
1: Dr. Amin Madani is the director of the Surgical AI Research Academy at the University Health Network in Toronto. He's an endocrine and acute care surgeon at UHN and assistant professor of surgery at the University of Toronto. Dr. Madani talked to us and showed us some of the work he is doing on AI and surgery, and in particular, on computer vision. He really breaks down for us the terms AI, machine learning, and surgical data science, and highlighted some of the promise and challenges For AI and surgery. Dr. Madani, thank you so much for joining us today on the Cold Steel podcast. It's truly an honor and a pleasure to have you on the show. Could you tell us a little bit about where you grew up and where you did your training?
2: Thanks for having me. Uh, Really exciting. I heard a lot about this uh, podcast. Uh, Great to be here. Um, So I kind of went all over the place. Uh, So I started in Toronto, Uh, that's where I did my undergrad, then went to Western. Uh, for med school, then uh, McGill for residency, where that's where I did also my research training and, and my PhD in surgical education, and then I uh, went to New York for surgical uh, endocrinology fellowship, and then finally back to Toronto. So that's sort of full circle, uh, and started as staff here for the past uh, few years.
0: That's a pretty awesome voyage. Tell us about your endocrine practice now, and and what your days and weeks look like, and uh, and what drew you to that field in particular.
2: Yeah, sure. So um, uh, endocrine surgery, I think a lot of people ask me, like, what, what which organs do you guys deal with? So uh, thyroid, parathyroid, and uh, adrenals. Um, I don't do too many neuroendocrine or pancreatic uh, uh, endocrine disorders. That's more for the HPB folks. But um, basically, we deal with everything from, um, you know, the full comprehensive care of endocrine disorder, anything right? from the benign to the more complex endocrine oncology. Uh, my bread and butter is uh, things like Thyroid nodules, goiters, thyroid cancer is a big part of my practice, so parathyroid disorders, um, everything from primary to renal hyperpara, uh, including secondary and tertiary. Adrenals, we do quite a bit. We're probably one of the more higher volume centers uh, where we do everything from incidental lomas to um, you know, hormonally active tumors to the more complex uh, adrenal cortical cancers, um, you know, to the big en bloc resections. Uh and uh, you know we try to do more innovative things, like uh, here we do a lot of retroperitoneoscopic adrenals, for instance. Um, we do a lot of minimally um, focused parathyroidectomies, and also uh, we started radiofrequency ablation of thyroid nodules. So that's kind of like uh, our practice uh, for endocrine surgery. We do a lot of ACS as well. I would say I'm probably like 85% endocrine, 15% ACS. And I would say my practice is more like a 50-50 surgical and uh, in, surgeon investigator type thing. So probably like one or two hours a week, one or two clinics a week, and two academic days. Living the dream. I'm not very good at math, but somehow that doesn't seem to add up to five days a week or seven,
1: seven <laughs> We make it fit. We squeeze that extra day in a week. Not surprised. Not surprised about, I think, what what some people would call AI in surgery, I think, there's some terms that you like maybe better than than that, and I think rightly so because I feel like this term of uh, AI or artificial intelligence surgery gets thrown around so much, and it must be galling. You know, like when I was in Boston doing my masters, I think there was like two two terms that got thrown around all the time, which was blockchain and AI. And It used to drive me insane. So can you can you talk to us a little bit about like like when people say AI? What really are we talking about? And in particular, how is that different than machine learning?
2: Yeah, that, that's a great question. And you're so right. I, there's so much hype around the term. And the number of times I see the word AI thrown around when it's not actually AI. <laughs> it's quite incredible. I'll just start off actually by saying my background actually is not, um, I'm not a computer scientist or engineer. I think my background has always been in, in surgical education, in trying to understand decision making in the OR you know, where the gaps in performance happen. Um, and so then I kind of met like really smart people who did a lot in computer vision and, and machine learning. And that's kind of how I got involved with it. But anyways, it's a great field. But AI, uh, just to go back to your question. So, okay, AI is really, um, it's a big term. Uh, it's really the, uh, the study of computer science uh, that focuses on machines being able to perform human-like functions or functions that are traditionally done by humans like perceptual functions or uh, decision-making, cognitive functions, and sometimes even surpassing human abilities like superhuman. That's kind of like the AI, the overall study of all this. Machine learning is a little bit, it's a subset of AI. It's the part about AI that has made it so popular, if you will. If you think about traditional programs, if I want to program something, you know, I to write a program, a code. I have to explicitly program it in detail. I have to say for this situation, this is what's going to happen for that. This is a situation and you have to program it for all the different scenarios. Machine learning takes a different approach. It's saying, okay, here's a lot of data. I'm going to find patterns in this data to make sense and to be able to make predictions on new data that I have never seen before. That's the kind of essence of machine learning. So they're very different. Machine learning is a sub-form of AI. It, it's it's a form of um, algorithms that are able to perform AI uh, functions, essentially. I, I think from from reading
1: some of your work, and we'll post links to this, uh, if you're watching this on the YouTube channel, it'll be in the description. If, if you're listening to this on the podcast uh, audio version, we'll put it in the show notes, uh, some links to your papers. But uh, my sense is that you, you, you kind of uh, don't like either of uh, these terms, or you you prefer to use the term surgical data science. Tell us why that term is maybe perhaps a bit better, and perhaps also what is meant by the the term surgical data science.
2: Uh, No, excellent. And that's a great point, because I think, you know, regardless of what you do, regardless of what branch of research, you really have to be specific in the terms that you use. I try to stay away from using ai as much as possible when you write manuscripts or you give a talk because you know it's a very big 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 uh you know sort of overall uh, overarching term um you need to specify exactly what you mean like for instance um you know if it's a deep neural network i'm going to describe it as that uh, you know as opposed to saying the ai i'm going to specify the algorithm the specific type of algorithm they used for that specific research question for instance and i think it's important to do that especially if we're going to describe our research and it has to be reproducible and so on and so forth um surgical data science is an important term and that's and i like that term because that to me makes more sense from a surgical standpoint because it's more it's bigger than ai it's got the application uh, of why we want to use AI into the term. It's So it's, it's much bigger than just AI. It's the overall field of how we use data to improve what we do in the OR. Uh, basically, surgical data science is um, basically how we capture this vast amount of data from the OR or around our patients. How do we organize it? How do we curate it? How do we analyze it and create prediction models? Um, with it, so that we can help, help, help us uh, take care of our surgical patients, and and opt, uh, you know, and ultimately improve everything from quality, safety, stewardship, and so on. When I say data, I mean everything from the vital signs, the blood work, the pixels on the on the monitor during MIS or you know fluoroscopy, uh, all the information the nurses type in the computer, uh, you know, uh, about the ASA score or whatever. This is all data. And when you think about today's practice, you know we have a wealth of data and you know uh, on patients. and we it's up to us to kind of integrate all this data and to kind of use our gestalt on like, you know and make decisions around the patient. um you know that's how we decide and you are. you know what? things don't look right. Why don't we divert the patient? I say that because I think you're a colorectal surgeon <laughs> um so that's that's kind of how we use data science in our everyday life. But fast forward to the future, Uh, We want to be able to tap into those modern computational techniques like AI and be able to integrate this kind of these avalanche of data uh, to find patterns that we cannot see as humans and augment our abilities. Um, You know, we're looking at surgical data science. We're looking at the seamless integration of uh, these kinds of uh, support tools uh, in the OR. Uh, that will kind of make us sort of superhuman uh, improve our situational awareness and things of that nature and it's you know this kind of data driven augmentation is uh, everything uh, you know the decision making uh, support during surgery it could be how to tailor the care to a specific patient um you know perioperative decision making uh, things like that and i mean if you can picture yourself in your the future you can see like again going back to the example of uh, whether to divert or not um, you know, you can have an AI algorithm that says, you know what, based on the pixels I see, based on the lab work, based on all this data, I can make a prediction with 85% probability there's gonna be a leak if you anastomose this. And then, you know, help you with the decisions for So So that's, that's how surgical data science to me is a little bit different from AI. AI is the actual uh, computational techniques that you use. Surgical data science is a study of using all that for the intended uh, applications
1: i i'm getting a little bit of a ptsd just talking about whether to divert this patient or not because it feels like 90% of my life is this this question <laughs> uh, thyroid
2: for me it's yeah. the whether or not the parathyroid's <laughs> there or the <laughs> yeah. turn actually... nerve.
1: what do you divert uh, anyway okay so you know like it's funny because again you talk about in this paper that you wrote, wrote you're you're listed you're among these many of these great certain scientists on this paper that I think came out of a workshop talking about the fact that there actually are not that many success stories when it comes to surgical data science, right? Like, you know, for the all the hype, where do we actually see, certain, you know, this type of predict, you know, risk prediction or, you know, uh, decision support? We don't really see it. Like, I, it's interesting that you talk about specifically about whether to leak or not. You know, there's been all these papers that have looked at the fact that the decision to divert patients probably is more related to the, pers- the surgeon's personality type, right? Like, are you a risk-averse type surgeon or are you not? And less to do with the patient in front of you in the clinical situation, right? And, you know, like that's just one example. And we don't even use very often very simple, basic decision support type tools. So I guess what I'm asking is why do you think there haven't been that many success stories in terms of surgical data science. And what do you think it's gonna take to actually start to really bring some of this work to fruition?
2: Thanks for mentioning that, Amir. I mean, mean, that's one of the things that I spend a lot of my time and energy explaining to people because there's, you're right, there's so much hype out there and there are billions of dollars being poured into this industry. Um, The amount of dollars uh, invested by VC companies into like the, the hype of like AI in surgery and this and that is so profound, disproportionate. I think a lot of people recognize how powerful this technology can be, but to this day, I have yet to see, I mean, you tell me, have you ever seen AI in the operating room? Despite all the hype, I I mean, it's, it's very hard to see. The only area that I've seen it, maybe maybe show a bit of a success is in adenoma detection uh, rates for colonoscopy and you may be familiar with some of the new platforms that are out there where you have you know you do your colonoscopy and then you have a computer vision uh, algorithm that basically detects pullets and kind of highlights it with a square so that you can you know to tell you there's a polyp, for instance and even that even despite all the studies they've done to that whether or not it improves patient outcomes is still up in the air like it may in, improve your adenoma detection rate but perhaps these are you know things that would never have uh let the colon cancer or whatnot so you know the ai we have yet to show uh, the value proposition and so that's why we need success stories to actually show that it actually can improve things in the or and um and and we're not there yet um the stuff that we've done has been a lot of proof of concepts like we know we can use AI to do certain things like I know I can develop a computer vision algorithm to you know to tell me whether or not a critical view of safety has been achieved or not you know but 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 implementing that into the real world is it going to improve patient outcomes I don't know uh, I'll I'll give you an example one of the things that we're working on is creating so so all these proof of concepts they're just a piece of software right now. It's like it's just a software. Taking that into the operating room, it's a big step. Like so so we nobody's really done implementation or developed sort of like a seamless tool that people can take into the, the OR. You can't expect people to buy expensive hard, hardware into every operating room around the world. So one of our work has been in trying to design systems that people can take like for instance their phone or their tablet and just put it on the monitor and get like the ai to kind of like give you a uh, you know an assessment for instance things like that are think are what's going to help disseminate this kind of technology making it seamless making it easy making it scalable um but even then we have to be able to show that there is value behind it and so far i don't think uh i don't think we've done a good job of that it's hard to show that you know, an algorithm that tells you where to go or where not to go during lab is going to improve bile duct injury rates. You know, doing a randomized trial on that is quite challenging.
0: Uh, it's so interesting. I'm, I'm glad you took us there. Let's see if we can go a little bit deeper on on lap coli in particular, given that it's one of those procedures that's really the glue across general surgery. And a lot of our listeners, you, you guys wrote a recent paper that was super interesting. Can, can you talk about go no go and, and how You know, you framed it beautifully, but how that really works in terms of its mechanics and and where you see that your vision at the end of the day, maybe maybe ending up.
2: Sure. Um, Yeah, that was. um, So I think just to take a step back and I think this is where it's really important. I think we can't get just like any innovation. And I emphasize this to everyone who wants to do this kind of research. Don't get sucked into the hype of the technology. Um, you know, first understand what the unmet clinical need is and then to design the solution around that. And that's how we design Go No Go Net. So, a lot of my background is understanding how, you know, injuries have decision making and lapses in judgment and things like that. And one of the main cognitive behaviors that we know that lead to bile duct injuries is this, you know, lack of awareness, perhaps, or errors in judgment where you dissect in a you know, in the territory where there's a high risk of bile duct injuries, below sort of this line of safety, um, you know, Ruvier sulcus and 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 things like that. Uh, so yeah. we trained an AI algorithm. We wanted to keep it very practical, something very uh, practical um, that helps you during surgery. Um, so we said, okay, it would be great to have an algorithm that kind of tells you these this is the fly zone, this is the no fly zone. Very simple binary go, no go. Uh, you want to keep your dissection, do whatever you want, but just keep it up there above this line, imaginary line of safety. That's important because, um, and that was a big step because for the first time, we're not just developing an algorithm that can tell you, hey, I see a cystic duct. Well, great. You know, the, the, how is that helping me in the OR? I've, if I've dissected the cystic duct, I don't really need an AI to tell me that. For the first time, we're training something to do something very clinically relevant. The second thing is that. There aren't very clear boundaries around a go and a no-go zone. It's a very conceptual thing that takes a lot of experience, a lot of pattern recognition, gestalt uh, of understanding what a safe zone is. So so that was one of the challenges in machine learning that, we, that hadn't been done before. Uh, so that was kind of like the reason behind it. And I, and I emphasize that because... People don't really recognize that addressing an unmet clinical need is a very big part of the of designing an AI solution. So, okay, so we decided to train an algorithm. We said, can it replicate the mind of an expert surgeon uh, to decide where these, uh, you know, go and no go zones are? So the way we did this was we basically, you know, we used something called supervised machine learning, which is basically you say, okay, AI, I'm going to teach you how to visualize this part of the uh, anatomy. I'm going to give you hundreds of thousands of different examples. So in this example, this is where the go zone is, this is where the no-go zone. In this example, this is where it is, and this is where it is. And you give it so many examples that it can learn from, and eventually, after hundreds of different cases and different scenes from those cases, uh, you know, it's able to figure out that this pattern of pixels, this is where the go zone uh, typically tends to be, and this is where the no-go zone is. And so that's kind of how we train the AI algorithm. And where we're able to find out is after enough training, it's more or less able to kind of figure out where these go zones and no go zone is. So it's kind of like your mental model as a surgeon being reflected on the surgical field. So you got this kind of augmented reality thing where it highlights these safe zones and unsafe zones uh, during surgery. That's kind of the idea and the motivation behind that.
0: That's so cool. Not to be negative about it, but where are some of the flaws and and some of the the places where this approach and this technology falls down and and how do you how do you address that? How do you recognize that and how do you kind of engineer around that?
2: Uh, no, I did not negative at all. I think you have to be like you got to be negative and critical about your research. Uh, otherwise, how do we uh, develop good, robust uh, you know things from this? Um, there are a lot of there's lots of deficiencies and and we've got to be honest because it's not ready for um, you know real time uh, you know prime time use yet um so there's a lot of problems we've noticed with the algorithm that the go no go net uh, algorithm there's a lot of also problems in general with uh, AI and deep learning um so I'll just start with the algorithm itself one thing that we noticed which was really interesting is um, as i was analyzing videos i came across a problem and uh, this is such a great illustration of one of the deficiencies of uh, deep neural networks deep neural networks are designed to basically like like i said take big complex data sets and find patterns and then make predictions and sometimes it takes the easiest path to find those predictions so one of the problems we found with this was the ai uh, we found that every time you had an instrument in the surgical field, it was biasing the results. And so it tended to move the go zone around where those instruments was. So a big question became, wait a second, is it telling you where the go zone is based on the underlying anatomy or based on where the instruments happen to be? You know, it just happens that most lab colles, the instruments happens you know the dissection tends to happen in a safe zone, um you know, uh, as opposed to an unsafe zone. So is it just learning the wrong thing? Um, and so we had to kind of accommodate, you know, make make adjustments to the model based on that. That's, that was one, uh, one bias we noticed. Another one we noticed, and this is one of the areas where doesn't, um, GoNoGoNet doesn't uh, fully succeed, is whenever you don't have good exposure of the anatomy, it's not able to tell you properly, like this is the safe area or this is unsafe area. Uh, when the when when the gallbladder hasn't been retracted properly, it doesn't just like us humans, like I can't properly assess words safe, it's unsafe when I don't have good exposure. Um, and this goes back to training an algorithm for a very specific function. Ultimately, it's not going to be one silver bullet AI algorithm that's going to solve bile death injuries. It's going to be a library of algorithms that can replicate many cognitive behaviors, like Good retraction, safe zone dissection, critical view of safety, like all the different things and nuances that uh, make you a safe surgeon. Um, so that's one of the other deficiencies we noticed. And then the other one was um, just like, again, like a surgeon, whenever it, it was so zoomed in that it just sees like fat and fibrous tissue, it had this sort of tunnel vision where it had no idea where it was. And it's was like, sure, go there. And it was like, no, not not in the safe place. So the algorithm doesn't work well when it's kind of very zoomed in. It has to, you know, see its anatomical, you know, just establish its bearings a little bit. And newer models that we're using are actually uh, integrating memory into it. So it's not looking at individual frames in and of itself. It's looking at, you know, based on frames I've seen previously, okay, this is not actually a go zone, uh, even though I'm zoomed in. So deep learning has a lot of deficiencies a lot of biases and you just have to be really really careful on how you use this technology because it can introduce biases that you could never have thought of before um and 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 going to the you know ai in general not just its biases but there's a lot of problems with it like for instance um you know how do you um, how do you under you know people want to know so if if something tells you uh, this is what i recommend you want to know why like, why do you think I shouldn't divert the patient? Well, because of this reason and that reason, um, you know, to help us and to guide our decisions. Uh, this explainability is one of the big lacks in AI. In AI, It's kind of like this black box where um, it's really, really good at making predictions, but it's not really good at telling you how it arrived at those decisions. And so there's an entire field of explainable AI that's, that's trying to target that so that, um, you know, so if I'm a surgeon and I'm using this kind of algorithm, um, you know, I can have some explainability around it. And, and there's gonna be more trust, um, you know, around this kind of technology for people who wanna adopt it in their OR. Um, and so that's that's definitely one of the big problems. Another problem is generalizability. So if just because I train an AI algorithm at from data from my institution, does not mean it's gonna work as well at your institution or even across the street. Um, I'll give an example. Um, you know let, let's say you train an ai algorithm to tell you uh where to go or where not to go during a I don't know colorectal operation and you trained it on uh you laugh but that's actually one of our next projects <laughs> um but anyways you train it up to do that and you basically train it on only on um you know university of calgary data and you've used only one platform like storts or olympus or whatever you know the the video itself is very different from another platform so it's it's guaranteed actually that it's not going to perform as well in someone else using a different platform for instance or using a different resolution different you know different aspect ratio or somebody likes to have like you know the full view with the black circle around like you know the circle somebody likes it zoomed in so that the full like all these nuances Um, you know, are very important. So you want to train an AI algorithm, it's important to have a very wide breadth of data, real world data that you're going to see, you want data from many institutions, from different healthcare systems, from different platforms, you know, people from different and different anatomies, different demographics, people that use different instruments, different techniques, and so on. Um, Because that's uh, that generalizability is a very big key part of
1: it. I mean, like, you're, like you mentioned, your background is in in surgical education. And I, I remember you actually came to Calgary uh, promoting the Fuse platform uh, when I was a resident. Uh, that's all about surgical energy and stuff. And so, you know, I wonder in your surgical education brain or what that lens on, where do you see this fitting in from an education perspective? Because, you know, in, in some like the, the explainability piece, I think is a big uh in some way, I don't know if you can say it's a problem, but but it is, it is a challenge in that, you know, you know, a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of what the AI has trouble with, like those are human, also human challenges that we have to learn as trainees. Like I was, I'm wrong, reminded of Dr. Ball and I, uh, you know, one of our mentors, Francis Sutherland, you know, he talks about this bile duct delusion, right? And so when you ever do a lab coli with him, he makes you like have it zoomed out. Like he, he doesn't allow you to actually, move the camera in closer when you're doing a lap coli because of this issue and so I I just wonder like um, do you you think I guess my question is how do you see this where do you see this being implemented in actual surgical practice is this uh, something like you switch on at the end of a case um, to sort of before you put the clips on to give you a an additional data point is this something you have on all the time where does that interact with training like where where does our where does it behoove us to like actually train ourselves to recognize these problems and these issues Um, and how does that interact with with uh, these types of algorithms and platforms Uh,
2: that's a great question uh you know and I, i don't know if we have all the answers to that i think um you're working we're just kind of seeing this starting to be introduced into the or and um, we've started doing surveys and and you know uh, you know qualitative studies and needs assessments surveys and things like that uh, for end users to kind of figure out how they want this technology integrated. I think that there's kind of two main themes that I you know that you can kind of see this and and when I say AI, I think I just want to emphasize we're talking about a lot of the work that we're doing computer vision. Um, AI like you said can be used so many you can uh, make prediction models on whatever data sets you want it can be for perioperative decision intraoperative navigation and things like that um uh, our areas has been really focused about in the operating room an algorithm that kind of gives you navigation and guidance so for that specifically i think that there's sort of two areas two themes that we you know we've noticed one is intraoperative um deployment and one is postoperative on the videos that have already been recorded Um, I can see this being used in a number of different ways for educational purposes, for quality improvement, uh, for feedback, for assessment, for uh, coaching, um, you know, and and it ultimately depends on the end users and what their uh, use case is. Um, Like a lot of people are not very keen to use this in the OR, we've noticed, especially since this is a very new technology, you know, there's not a lot of validity evidence behind it and things like that. Uh, but they're very happy to take the recorded videos um, sitting on their computer and seeing what the AI told them to do, told them they would would have suggested uh, and analyze their performance, and then use that as sort of like an educational experience, Uh, or you can use it for residents as well. Um, Perhaps they can get a safety score of some sort. Um, You you can use this for video based assessment uh, of residents, and we're actually doing a randomized trial right now, using this for residents, to see whether or not it actually improves their performance, uh, do they become safer? Uh, does it change their practice and and things like that? Um, so so I think there's a huge opportunity for post-operative uh, integration. The second piece is intraoperative, and that's been more challenging, obviously, because you have to integrate a technology in the OR. Um, it's got to work with the OR workflow and the equipment and the nurses and You know, that's a bit more challenging and we're not there yet. Like the way we've kind of done the initial deployment was I literally take we design a pipeline where I can take the laparoscopic tower, plug it into my tablet that I'm talking to you with right now. And basically, um, like have the video feed from the tower on my tablet and get the AI on a monitor. But who's going to have a you know, who wants to have another computer in the room, uh, having them with, guide them? Like, that's just not really uh, well integrated into your workflow. So the question this: so how would you use this in the OR? So I think that if for some people, it may be the situation where um, they, you know, they don't want to invest extra hardware to have this integrated into their OR, and they just want a quick, like, assessment to say, hey, am I on the right path, yes or no? okay, I don't need it anymore, let me continue the surgery. Uh, so you can use it that way. Like, like the example that I gave where you can take your like your iPhone or whatever, take the camera on it, put it on the monitor, and then just get the AI to give you an assessment. That's one of the ways we, we see this technology as being scaled every operating room around the world. Another way is there's gonna be a need for some people who, especially when algorithms become a lot more powerful, to have a sort of plug and play solution where, you uh, you know you literally uh, plug the AI into the monitor or into your integrated OR uh, and it gives you on-demand uh, high-performance AI inference in the OR. Uh, or and you can turn it on and off whenever you want. Um, now that begs the question: People who are doing unsafe maneuvers, uh, they're oftentimes unaware that they are doing unsafe maneuvers, and they may not be have the awareness to turn on an AI you know algorithm to guide them either. So. Um, uh, a lot of questions remain. I don't know. Uh, you know, I don't think I have all the answers, but um I think, in my opinion, we're going to see AI sort of integrated as sort of like a fly on the wall, kind of watching you. <laughs> you know, if it sees something that like you're about to do something, maybe give you like an alarm uh, of like, hey, you know, just maybe rethink what you're doing. Try this instead. or you know, maybe you should bail or change your approach. yeah, it's fascinating to think
1: how things might look uh, in the future. Two, we we have to. Since you mentioned it, where what what do you think G- Chat GPT is going to do to surgery? Like, <laughs> is this just a gimmick I don't know. Or do you? Or, <laughs> you know. No, no comment.
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, it, it's look, Chat GPT is a big game changer, but I don't really. We don't really know where it's so powerful that we don't really know where its applications will lie. Um, uh, but it also has a lot of problems too. Like, it's really good at like generating like, you know, uh, we were joking around with it. I'm like, uh, with ChatGPT, I'm like, uh, write me a song in the style of uh, Taylor Swift about surgical AI. And it like wrote me a song, like, and a really funny song. Like, it was really good. Like, things like that is really good at. Um, It's actually changed a lot of things, like for programming. Like, um, you know, one of my, the engineers I work with was made a joke. Uh, It took him two years to train something that, one of our uh, proof of concept uh, for 3d modeling and computer vision and took him two years to write a code for that when chat gpd came it took him literally 10 days to to do the same thing Uh, so there's actually joke amongst computer scientists that the new programming language is english uh, because you just need to type this is what i want and like it'll give you the computer code for it so you don't have to do it from scratch um, you know, you can see ChatGPT GPT uh, used for patient care. Like you know patients have questions about their surgery. Um, you know, they have like a quick thing that they need to answer. um you know, instead of trying to call the hospital to figure out their answers, they got Chad GPT to help them. Uh, you, you can see a lot of potential there. Um, there's a lot of problems too like as you know chat gpt will also give you references that it'll make things up that don't exist (laughs) which is a big problem um so 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 it's a very powerful thing i don't i just don't exactly know where it's going to come into play to be honest that in in in, you know in terms of clinical applications
1: it's all very exciting all kind of nebulous all kind of uh kind of interesting so it's an exciting time to life
2: what's that the field is, field is moving way too fast as faster than we can keep up uh you know not not just in terms of knowing what to do with this but also how to regulate it as well so
1: yeah that's a it's a whole discussion for another day about sort of the ethics around this and what is you know how do we roll this out in a way that's safe and and all that kind of stuff because I, I think that is an important consideration you know particularly around chat GPT but you wonder uh, about the tools that you're developing how how they're going to be implemented, you know? Does that have, what kind of legal, you know, ramifications does it have? Like if your go no go said don't go there, and you went there, like right? Like you could see some interesting scenarios coming up down the road, and I don't I don't think uh, we know the answers to any of these things yet.
2: Absolutely, I don't think we have precedent for that. And ultimately, I think it's going to be just like any technology that uses OR. Ultimately you have to use all of that in with with uh you know a grain of salt and at your own discretion. Cause um, you know, ultimately these prediction algorithms have their confidence intervals and things like that. And that's part of what we've integrated into our newer platforms is uh information about how confident it is about its predictions for you.
1: Dr. Badani, thank you so much again for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. One of the questions that we asked our guests at the end of the show is. If you could go back in time and give yourself advice as a, as a chief resident, or perhaps even as an early attending, although you're still uh, probably still a, a young buck, but you know, if you could go back in time and give yourself advice, maybe as a chief resident, what advice would
2: that be? Oh, it's I, I don't even know. Uh, like that's a tough question to answer. I think it's uh, it, it can be anything, not necessarily related to uh, surgical AI. I, I, You know, I think my the number one thing I would tell myself is uh, trust your training. Uh, I think, you know, when you go out into practice, I think um, there's all, a lot of unknowns and you're not sure of yourself. You question yourself, you question your abilities and things like that. Um, I think uh, one of the things I would go back and is say, it's OK, like you've got this, you've got the skill set, then you'll be fine. Especially in Canada, we get really good training all around um and the other thing is to not be afraid to ask for second opinions ask for help just hey i just want to run this case this is what i'm doing Uh, you know i know it's probably right but just want to run it by someone and and kind of helping that build your confidence so that you can finally fly from the nest or whatever that analogy is um that would be kind of uh, I i guess the one advice i would say
1: You've been listening to Cold Steel, the official podcast of the Canadian Journal of Surgery. This episode was produced and edited by Kirsten Allen, one of our new team members on the Cold Steel team and a medical student at Queen's University. If you have comments or questions, please email us at podcast.cjs at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.